It was 54 years ago that three men went on an unforgettable, epic, and historic journey. It was a journey that had not been made before, and on that journey they would see something that no human eyes had ever before held. Uh, They would be sharing what they beheld with the entire world. The three men were the astronauts aboard the Apollo 8 spacecraft. Uh, The three men's names were Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. Uh, After much training and all of the expertise that they brought to bear, uh, they left the surly bonds of Earth and into the vast darkness of space. Apollo 8 was... Uh, one of the missions, one of the several Apollo missions, this particular one was to, the goal was to orbit the moon, something mankind had not done, had ever done to that point. Now, NASA, in the planning for this trip, told the three men, uh, what's going to happen when you orbit the moon, God willing that you get there? Uh, they were told by the publicists and the people at NASA uh, that they would have the largest audience ever listening in, and that the only instructions that they had from NASA was to do something appropriate. And so on December 24th, 1968, orbiting the moon at 71 miles high, as they hurtled through space at 5,720 miles per hour, the Apollo 8 astronauts did something that I would call entirely appropriate. They opened their Bibles, and they read from Genesis 1. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a ferment in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the ferment, and divided the waters which were under the ferment from the waters which were above the ferment. And it was so. And God called the ferment heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. Powerful words. 
Particularly comforting words for a world in chaos. I'm not talking about 2023, though you might think I am. From this voyage came the famous photo that you see, Earthrise. As you look at that blue marble there hovering over nothing, what seems to be a calm and peaceful, serene planet is a a world rocked with chaos. In 1968, by the way, how many of you were alive and remember hearing this broadcast? All right? Okay, interesting. It was powerful. But in 1968, the world was a world at chaos. There had been assassinations. Uh, Two years before President Kennedy had been assassinated, in 1968, his brother Robert was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. Uh, the Vietnam War was rocking. Casualties were on the rise. Protests were everywhere. The Democratic National Convention was one of the most violent on record. There was racial strife at the Olympic protests. There was, there was all of these headlines in 1968, and you think, wow, I, that could have been pulled from today's newspaper. That could have been pulled from today's news. And it strikes me, that three, three astronauts wrestling with what do you say at such a poignant moment in history? What do you say to a world in chaos? And the answer they gave was exactly the right one. The, the a- astronauts pointed away from our tumultuous, chaotic, storm-filled world, and they pointed back to bedrock. They pointed back to the anchor. They pointed back to what was true. So we're going to actually read from Genesis 1 today. They read Genesis 1, 1 through 10. We're not going to do all of that. But I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And as we did last week, I'm going to ask you to stand. Go ahead and stand. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. And last week, I read it for you. This week, I'm going to ask all of us, to read it together. Knowing there are different translations in the room, I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis 1 and simply read the next slide. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. Let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Word of God. You may be seated. Those still powerful words were not just bedrock and an anchor in the storms for 1968. They were a bedrock and an anchor for us today. And they'll be a bedrock and an anchor for us 54 years from now. A thousand and fifty-four years from now. They are bedrock and anchor. They're what will hold our world, our drifting world. To the heart of God. And so we're going to look at Genesis 1 this morning. Now, if you're expecting a detailed text-by-text, word-by-word study, you showed up an hour late. You need to be here for Bible class because by the Spirit's direction, not by planning with Doug and I, we, I'm covering Genesis and the Bible classes are covering Genesis, which I think is a good indication that the Spirit says we need to be back here. But Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and we're going to look at three principles that we get from Genesis chapter 1. 
this morning, okay? So Genesis 1 first points us to something, and that is it points us towards God's presence. All throughout Genesis 1, we see again and again the fullness of God. In fact, as I think about the entirety of this book, it starts and it ends with God. Now, we would expect the preacher to say that. But, but just look for just a minute at Genesis chapter 1 and see if you can count how many times God is mentioned. I counted it in the English Standard Version. And so, if you're going to tell me afterward how many, know that my number is based on the ESV. But in Genesis chapter 1, it's just permeating, overflowing with God, with the presence of God, with the actions of God, the work of God. The theological term for that is omnipresence. And that $5 word means very simply, God is everywhere. You can't escape God. You, you, this is what Genesis introduces us to. It. You can't run from God, despite Jonah trying to try. You can't escape God's commands, despite people having tried again and again to do it. You cannot escape the presence of God. In fact, I have a little contest this morning for all children 12 and under. If you're 12 and under this morning, here's, uh, here's the contest. I want you to count how many times you see God mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? And again, I'll direct you to the English Standard Version. Come up to me after worship, and I know a lot of you will do it. So uh, the first one I've got a little, a little prize for. So Genesis chapter 1, look for how many times God is mentioned. Now, for the rest of us, that's a, a simple but profound lesson that God is everywhere. If you're following along in your Bibles and you want to turn to some other confirming scriptures, go to Genesis, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, rather, Jeremiah chapter 23, the old weeping prophet calling Israel to repentance, says these words in Genesis chapter 23, verse 24, he says, I'm sorry, uh, yes, uh, verse 24, can a man... Hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall, mankind has been hiding from God and saying he's difficult to find. Despite our self-delusion and believing that we can hide from God, God reveals again and again from Genesis to Jeremiah all the way through Revelation that God is everywhere. His presence is inescapable. Psalm chapter 139, David, a man after God's own heart, writes these words. Verses 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or other translations say the depths, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light shall be about, about me, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The, dark, the night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. God is everywhere. His presence cannot and should not be ignored and certainly not discounted. The Bible in Genesis chapter 1 brings us to a God-centered world view. And that's what I hope that you as Christ followers and God-fearing people begin to see. That you begin to view the world and all of its events whenever and wherever they happen through a God-centered lens. That helps bring our spirits back into proper focus. It's easy to listen to everyone else's voices, but the question is, what does God say? The question is, where is God working in this? The question is, what is God's will on this? Not, not, not what is my will, not what is my feeling, but what does God say about the matter? And so a good practice not just for little children looking for the word God, but for all of us to look for God. You say, how can we look for God? We can't see God, God's spirit, Jesus says in John chapter 4. That's true. We have to pay close attention. We have to keep our eyes open, but more importantly, we have to keep our, our hearts open. We have to keep our ears open, but we also have to keep our hearts open to God and ask, where is God working in this. So Genesis 1 is full of God's presence. Now, we get that from the very first verse. But, but more than all God's presence, we also see something else about God. And that's the second. Genesis points us to God's authority. Uh, the phrase, I think, most repeated besides the word God is the phrase, and God said. So, now a contest because I know you guys feel bad about being left out. So, for the 13 to 18-year-olds, here it is. Here's your challenge. Look in Genesis chapter 1 and count how many times we see the phrase, and God said, or one alteration of that is saying, and God saying. Okay. So, if you'll count up, and God said, and God saying, I'll offer you the same option. Come up to me afterward, tell me how many times you found it in the ESV. Because this phrase, and God said, is so fundamentally important. And God said points us, not just to the fact that there is a God, but that he has authority in our lives. That he's the ultimate authority within our lives. Turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John echoes the beginnings of Genesis, of course we know. But... This is interesting. He says, uh, John chapter 1, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You see, God's words have power. Unique kind of power. If you're following along... Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter of faith, begins 
Verses 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not things not seen. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. If you're following along and you have a Bible, you can underline or highlight in. I hope you underline that phrase. The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are It was not made out of things that are visible. See, God's word, we talk about God's word is has power. The scripture in Hebrews 12 compares it to a sword. But more than that, God's word, his spoken word, back in Genesis chapter 1, has power. Now, you've heard people say, your words have power. And to some degree, I understand what they mean. But your words do not have power like God's word. The Word of God has the ability to speak something from nothing. To speak things into existence. Every part of the created order is preceded by the phrase, And God said. And God said. And God said. The most famous one is, of course, the first one. And God said, Let there be light. He spoke that, and what does the scripture say? There was light. That's the difference between God's word and our words. Do our words have power on a human scale? But nothing like the creator's scale. Nothing like the the magnitude of his power to create things instantaneously, directly. I mean, if, if it was my will, and I could just right now say, Chicken sandwich. But you see, that doesn't happen, does it? Because my words are futile. My words have limitations. And so do yours. That's why it's so important that we pay attention to what God's powerful word has to say. It's different than human words. Fundamentally different. And so, in a world where we proceed everything by I think and I feel, we should pause and say, but, but what does God think? What does God feel? What does God say? That's the difference because he has authority. And, and not only authority, power behind his word. All right. This one we're going to jump a little bit ahead. But Genesis also shows us, besides God's presence and his authority, is that the enemy always has a strategy. Now we're going to move just a little bit. I know we're jumping ahead, but go to Genesis chapter 3. The the, the first chapter is all about God, God's presence, God's power, uh, how he reveals himself, what he's done. Okay, Genesis chapter 3 starts with this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And let me tell you, Over the span of human history, the enemy's strategy fundamentally has not changed. 
regardless. You, you may feel something, you may think something, but, but God's people are in danger of sometimes we, we know what the word says, we can see it plainly. A third grader can understand what God's will is. And the enemy can still work very subtly to say, did God really say? Listen, I've got books and books in my library full of very smart people who fundamentally say, this is what God says, but that's not really what it says. We have to be very on guard for that. It is the enemy's work to always cause doubt and confusion and disbelief over what God said. Listen, all of our troubles began with the question, did God really say? And so I will encourage you to remember and know and believe and stake your life upon and your eternity upon what God says. Because what everyone else says matters very little. I don't care what their degrees are. I don't care the letters before or after their name. If it disagrees with what this says, we've got a fundamental problem. Our our troubles grow when we ignore what God says. Ask Moses, who didn't get to the promised land because he forgot what God said. Ask Uzzah, who was struck down trying to do a good thing, but he forgot what God said. Ask Jonah, who who spent some time in a kind of a fishy motel because he didn't yield to what God said. Now we know those stories in Scripture are there for us. So pay attention, brothers and sisters and guests, to what God says, because what anyone else says matters very little. You you don't have to go to the moon to turn to God. Here are three things that I think we can learn and I think we can, more importantly, put into practice. Number one, look for God's work. His presence is everywhere. I don't care if you're on the mountaintop or in the valley in your life. Just step back for a second and ask yourself, How is God working here? What is God doing here? You know, someone once said that it was his, that it was uh, God's fingerprints are all over our world. I like the sentiment, but it's backwards. (laughs) It's not his fingerprints on our world. It's our fingerprints all over his. His presence, his power, his work is evident here, but it's also evidence all throughout our lives. So always be willing to ask the question, where and how is God working? When Paul preached the sermon on Mar- to uh, the group there gathered at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he, he asks sort of an interesting question, or he poses a rhetorical question as he preaches to them about an unknown God. This is Acts 17. He says... Verse 24, the the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he from one man made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. But this is the most interesting part, I think. Verse 27, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet, he is actually not far from each of us. If you've been wrestling with God, think, God, where are you? Know that he's closer than you think. If you'll just open your eyes and your heart and mostly open his word and listen to him. Number two, may we yield to God's will. Knowing God's word is one thing, but yielding to it is something else entirely. Uh, don't just know what God says. Okay? You can write it down. You can fill in the handout. You can go to Bible class. Those are all excellent things. I hope your small group opens the Bible and doesn't just sit around and chat about their feelings. I hope you study the Bible. I hope you read the Bible. I hope you're in the daily Bible reading plan. But that's only part. That's only half the journey. It's not just a Bible knowing thing. It's a Bible doing thing. We've got to yield to him. Like Jesus bent his will to the Father. Now think about that. Jesus was the living word, is the living word. He knew God's commands. He lived them out perfectly. And yet Luke records in Luke chapter 22 that he bent his will to the Father. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but yours be done. So don't just look for God's work. Yield to the will of God. We say, how do I know the will of God? Well, very simply, you start here by knowing the word. Now, a lot of people, there's a thing, well, the Bible's too hard to understand. There's a lot of difficult things. That's true. There are some difficult things to understand. But it's not the difficult things that we have the problem with, is it? No, it's the very clear and simple things that we just don't want to yield to. Number three, may we listen to God's voice. May we look... For what God says, God makes it clear. <laughs> From Genesis 1 all throughout, God says, and God says, and God says. But we have to listen. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your minds, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, that's listening, truly listening to God is a heart thing. When Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he's saying, Everyone hears my words, but not everyone puts them into practice, right? That was the story he told uh, when he talked about the, the wise and the foolish builders. So, look for God's work, yield to God's will, and listen to his voice. Because ultimately, no other voice matters. I'll say this to you, and then I want to share a story with you. God's voice is the only way home. I want to share this story with you. I want you to listen to the lesson. An airplane. A pastor came up. Getting ready to leave and go back to Anchorage and then home. And I had a ticket in my pocket to get on an airplane. A pastor came up. And he said, listen, I can save you money. 
I said, how's that? He said, I flew a small airplane up here. And I fly a small airplane. And I can take you in my little airplane and you can save your ticket. And this did not sound... I said, gee, thank you so very, very much. But I've got this ticket. We'll just make our way on home, me and this other lawyer with me. He said, no, 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 you got to do it, you got to do it. And against every better judgment I had, I said, okay. Well, we went out to the airport, took us by his little plane, and I looked at it. And I thought, well, one good thing, it's shiny. Then he walked around it. We got in. He's on the left front. I'm on the right front. The other lawyer's sitting right behind me. And he started it up. And it started up just fine. Well, we taxied out. I said, should we pray? He said, yeah, that's a good idea. We normally don't. I said, well, this time we're going <laughs> to. And I'm telling you, I prayed five, eight minutes. I prayed a long time. We went and got on the runway. He starts down the runway. The plane lifted off ever so gently, and we start climbing. And it's wonderful. Not a problem in the world. We started climbing, and we flew probably three, four minutes. And something happened that will never leave my mind. The pilot turned to me and he said, we're going in the clouds and I can't fly in clouds. They make me pass out. I said, clouds make you do what? <laughs> now, it's been cloudy all day. And we go right up into the clouds and you can't see anything. And he looks at me and his eyes roll back in his head. And he starts mumbling and he passes out passed out cold. Now I grabbed him and I shook him and I said, come on, you got to wake up so I can kill you. Now we're in the clouds flying along with no pilot. And my friend in the back seat said, we're dead, aren't we? I said, there's a very good chance of that. Yes. He said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. But there was a radio right there and I handed him the microphone and I said, start asking for help. So he's in the back seat reaching up and he said, hello, hello. We didn't know any proper radio etiquette. All we were saying was hello. And somebody answered back, hello, hello, don't you guys know proper radio etiquette? And I said, give it to me. I said, tell them we don't know nothing. Tell them we're in an airplane with a passed out pilot and we don't know how to fly this plane. The guy said, I'm a freighter flying out of Anchorage on the way to Tokyo. And he said, you're telling me you have nobody who can fly that plane with you? I said, tell them that's correct. Now you got to understand, I am sweating bullets. He said, the first thing I'm going to do is start circling so I don't lose you because I'll fly out of range of your radio and you won't have me anymore. And he said, I'm going to get Anchorage Emergency for you. And Anchorage Emergency will be the people that can maybe help you try to save your life. After about five minutes, Anchorage came on, said, we understand you have a passed out pilot. And those of you do not know how to fly that plane. We said, that's right. They said, well, the first thing we got to do is find you. And I'll never forget what this man at Anchorage said. He said, my job is to get you home safe. He said, that's my job. But he said, here's the deal. If you want me to get you home safe, you got to promise me you'll obey my voice. He said, you can't see me, but I can see you. And he said, if you're not going to obey my voice, you're going to die. When you can't see anything, you have no idea how disorientated you become. Finally, he said, okay, I found you. Now, hear me clear. He said, you're four minutes from a mountain. He said, you're going to crash in that mountain and die. Follow my voice. I never said... I have to follow your voice? Is that reasonable? You see, I understood without his voice, I had nothing. And do you understand, without God's voice, you have nothing. Nothing. 
Finally, he got us turned. And he said, I'm freezing all the traffic in the area. He said, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get you to Anchorage. And there's a lot of weather between you and Anchorage. You're in for a rough ride. And he said, I want you to hear me. I don't want you to look at what's going on outside. I don't want you to pay attention to the storm, just my voice. He said, if you start watching the storm, you will die. But I'll take you through it. Now, because they cleared all the traffic, several pilots, those nighttime freighters, those 747s started talking to us. They said, we're praying for you, men. You're going to make it. But listen to the voice. That's the key. They said, trust the voice. You realize your head is full of voices. And everybody in this world wants to talk to you. And everybody wants to be the controlling voice. And God says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to put yourself on the altar and let my voice be your voice. Finally, we went through the worst of the weather, but there was still more. And then the voice came back and it said, now, I'm going to line you up. He said, I'm going to bring you in right down the runway. And at the foot of the runway are some lights and they're in the form of a cross. He said, don't you forget this. The cross is the way home. Finally, he's bringing us down. We still can't see anything. And all he kept saying is, stay with me. My sheep, the Bible says, hear my voice and they follow me. Finally, just a couple hundred feet off the ground, we saw the cross. I landed the plane. In fact, I landed it seven times. Finally, it all came to a stop. And the minute we stopped, the pilot woke up. The voice said, thanks for listening. I watch them crash and burn all the time because they won't follow my voice. They don't understand I'm the one who can see them even when they can't see me. But they get the voices in their head and they kill themselves. They self-destruct. Thanks for listening to the voice. In our world, where we're told so often to listen to your own voice, listen to your own heart, listen to what everyone else says, the teaching from Scripture, from the opening chapter, is listen to what God says. Someone handed me this this morning. They had no idea what it was preaching about. I said, this is perfect. God's voice will still you. Satan's voice will rush you. God's voice will lead you. Satan's voice will push you. God's voice will reassure you. Satan's voice will frighten you. God's voice will enlighten you. Satan's voice will confuse you. God's word will encourage you. Satan's word will discourage you. God's word will admonish you. Satan's voice will flatter you. God's voice will comfort you. Satan's voice will worry you. God's voice will calm you, and Satan's voice will obsess you. God's voice will convict you. Satan's voice will condemn you. May we listen to God's voice. It is the key to getting us home through the storms. I'll leave you with one final instruction from the Word of God, the living Word of God. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This morning, those are the words I want you to think about. 
I want you to ask yourself, have you yielded to God's voice? Have you listened to God's voice? If you haven't done that and you're ready to do that this morning, we're going to sing a song here in a minute. You can head to the back and find one of our shepherds at each of the doors and let them know you're ready to obey. You're ready to yield. You're finally ready to listen to God's voice. If you have a spiritual need this morning and we can help you in that way or in any other way, once you head to the back during this song.